0: Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm your host, Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 463. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Inside Science series, our program today is with George Mason University Observatory team members Peter Plavgen and Michael Summers. Since the dawn of humankind, we have wondered if we are alone in the universe. Peter Plavjan and Michael Summers, professors of physics and astronomy at George Mason University, are with us today to examine how science has progressed in furthering our understanding of this age-old question, are we alone? We'll explore the prospects for life within our solar system from tardigrades on the moon to the mysteries on Mars and the oceans of Europa. Over the past 30 years, science fiction has become science fact with the discovery of thousands of exoplanet worlds. We are going to take a look at plans for future NASA missions beyond the solar system to capture images of other Earths, as well as the latest on scientific searches of techno-signatures. Gotta wait and hear this. All of these techno-signatures are going to be from intelligent alien civilizations, if they're out there. With remote access, you can virtually tour the observatory. And if weather allows, view the skies through George Mason University's primary telescope. This is going to be an awesome presentation. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better show via internet phone, Peter Plavgen and Michael Summers, part of our Summer Science and Space Tuesday series with George Mason University Observatory. Dr. Peter Plovchen and Dr. Michael Summers, welcome to the program.
1: Hello, thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, hi, Paul. Hi, it's good to be talking to you both. I think this is really going to be just a fascinating subject. We're going to talk about searching for life in the universe. And I wonder, Dr. Plovchen, if you would tell us a little bit about the upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. It'll be Zoom. And Zoom is uh, going to be, I think, a really great tool to use for this. Uh, some of our audience really enjoys the engagement part of it. So how, how will you be engaging our audience around your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for uh, having us on your podcast. A new series, a new partnership that we're exploring between George Mason University and the Smithsonian. There used to be in years past uh, some public lectures with the U.S. Naval Observatory. And years ago, they actually had people come on site and visit the observatory there. But Uh, Since September 11th, uh, that mostly hasn't been able to happen. So we're here on the George Mason campus, and we have the largest on-campus observatory in in nearby states. And uh, we wanted to be able to reach out to the general public and and share our love of the night sky with uh, everyone in the D.C. area. So we're excited about this program. And as you know, it's going to be a virtual event via Zoom. Uh, for this month and future installations for the time being. Eventually we hope to hold uh, these events in person again. And Zoom is a nice tool for video conferencing. A lot of uh, uh, professors like myself are using it regularly to communicate with our students, both in class and for research. And for this particular event we're gonna be holding with the Smithsonian Associates program, we're gonna have moderators who will uh, have take questions from the audience and they will pass those questions along to Dr. Summers and myself for answering those questions. And then at the end of the talk, there'll be an extended Q and A period followed by a virtual tour of our observatory. So we have some webcams set up in our observatory and it's entirely remote controlled. So we'll be able to, from our homes, uh, move the telescope Uh, and point it at the camera so you can take a look at it from different angles. And if the weather permits, we'll open it up and we'll see uh, real live views of some celestial objects uh, in the night sky. Uh,
0: As I say, I think this is just going to be a fascinating presentation. I love the idea of having the interactivity and, and... And I'm gonna I'm gonna wish like everybody else that the night sky is a clear one that evening that we'll be able to make use of the webcams and and get a good glimpse as to uh, what the sky is. But let's dive in a little bit and and define a few terms. In my research of of you of both of you and and of this subject, I found the term exoplanet. I, I assume that will be discussed. So maybe sit, give us a sense as to to what that term is exoplanet and and why this discovery of exoplanets isn't science fiction anymore, but this is science fact we're talking about.
1: Yeah, so let me just start by saying we're hoping for clear weather as well, but if we're, we're lucky in weather, we do have some images taken previously with the observatory will show, and you can always come back for a future session. It is true as an observational astronomer, one of the things beyond our control from the ground is uh, the weather, and it's just an act of life that we accept as a professional. But uh, yeah, I... Um, Uh, I'm a professional scientist that looks for and characterizes planets around other stars, things we call exoplanets. And uh, it's been an amazing time to be uh, studying this field over the past 25 years, where we've turned the science fiction of Star Wars and Star Trek into science fact. And today there are over 4,000 confirmed and or validated planets that we know about that orbit other nearby stars. And Life as we know it requires a planet or a moon on which to, to live on, or maybe it might live on a moon, or we're hoping it does. Uh, and uh, so the first step in being able to search for life in the universe is being able to understand really how many other exoplanets are there out there. Are they like and unlike our own Earth, our own solar system? And there's just been a fascinating uh, array of discoveries that have been taking place, and that pace is only continuing to accelerate.
0: Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Summers. Dr. Michael Summers, a professor of planetary sciences and astronomy. I want to, I want to get, I want to pull you into this, and I want to ask you kind of a big, broad question, and just say, what's our progress in answering the the, the often we we hear this trope often, you know, uh, are we alone in the universe, and w- what's the science telling us? What's the science telling you about that particular uh, question?
2: well it's, it's a it's a great question and, and it's probably the most common question that I, I get in my classes and when I give talks. Um, the, the bottom line is that you know we have not discovered life elsewhere and and but that's not necessarily disappointing because we barely scratched the surface looking at other planets in our solar system and beyond. But what we have found, is that it appears as if the universe is somehow geared towards complexity and, and life. Like, in, in fact, life as we know it. We find water on uh, other places in our solar system, the moons of Jupiter, the moons of Saturn, and even Pluto has an ocean of, of salty water inside of it. In fact, the Earth is one of the drier places in, in, in our solar system. And we that's new. We didn't know that 20 years ago. Uh, That's new discovery. Water is essential for life as we understand it, and it's common throughout the universe. Carbon is essential. And and we find carbon that's all over the universe. We even find planets that appear to be mostly made of carbon. And usable energy is is, abundantly available on, on planets and exoplanets. So what we found is that the a universe that is, is somehow geared towards the production of the kind of life that we are in terms of chemicals, and a universe that has provided you know enormous numbers of planets that are habitable for life. Of course, that doesn't prove that there's life there. That just means that their life could be there, life as we know it, not necessarily us you know, stepping out of a spaceship and walking around and breathing the air. We're never going to find a planet that's exactly like the Earth. But, you know, just think about that. There, there are more habitable planets in, in our galaxy than the number of people that have ever lived on Earth. And if you project that to the the observable universe, there are more habitable planets than the combined number of heartbeats of all the people that have ever lived That does not mean that there's life out there, but I tell you, I'm not a betting person, but if I was, I know how I would bet. (laughs)
0: Well, let me ask you, would you bet on the tardigrades? Because that's, that's something we hear a fair bit about today are the tardigrades. And I wonder what, what are the prospects of life within our solar system? And then maybe talk about the tardigrades and their living. They've been found on the moon now. Is that right?
2: Well, uh, yeah, tardigrades, uh, you know, they're also known as water bears or, or moss bears. And and they're tiny little critters, you know, from a tenth of a millimeter, maybe up to a little bit more a millimeter long. And we find them all over the place on Earth. We find them in marshes. We find them underneath glaciers. We find them in the deepest part of the ocean. Uh, we find them on top of mountains. Um, and, and they're a type of life that we call an extremophile. Uh, it can live in an extreme environment. In fact, they can live in, in more extreme environments than, than which we find on Earth. Um, they, they can survive in, in radiation environments that would kill humans in just a few minutes, and they thrive. You can dry them out for 30 years, and they put water on them, and they reanimate. Um, and, and so because they can survive in such extreme environments, we believe that they could survive in many of the environments in our solar system. Uh, in the in the internal oceans in Europa, Ganymede, Callisto, maybe in the clouds of Venus, maybe underneath the surface of Mars, uh, maybe in the oceans of Enceladus and Titan around Saturn, and so there, if you if you think about extremophiles as a as a group of organisms, everything from bacteria up to maybe macroscopic creatures a little bit, bit bigger than than tardigrades, there's more extremophiles on Earth. In terms of biomass, that all the other combined life on Earth. Okay, in other words, extremophiles, of which the tardigrades are an example, is the dominant life form on Earth, not the most intelligent. And, and you know, as humans, you'd probably argue not the most important, but the kind of life that can survive in many of the places in our solar system. Um, again, that doesn't mean that, that these things we will find in these places in our solar system. But we could certainly transplant it there. Now, in terms of finding um, tardigrades on the moon, it's it's kind of a complicated story. There was a satellite, I mean, a spacecraft that was gonna take tardigrades, about a thousand of them to the moon and see how they would survive. Well, the the spacecraft crashed and the tardigrades are somehow spread over the surface of the moon now. And um, we don't know if they survived or not. So it's going to be interesting to go back and find out if they're still there. We, we've not found tardigrades anywhere else outside of the Earth yet. And, and we really haven't been looking that much. We have taken tardigrades into space and exposed them to vacuum. And they survived. Uh, it's just it's hard to kill the little critters. Um, but it, it gives you optimism that, that life as we know it is extremely adaptable to just about any kind of environment that you could imagine on a habitable planet. Extremes and chemicals. There are are extremophiles that can breed toxic substances. There there are extremophiles that can live in boiling water. They can live below the the freezing point of water. Uh, And and it just goes on and on. And and it's a surprising insight into the nature of life itself. Life is so adaptable that you know, it may be hard to find a habitable planet where they cannot adapt to it.
0: The title of the presentation at Smithsonian Associates is Searching for Life in the Universe. We are with Dr. Peter Plavchen and Dr. Michael Summers. We're going to be visiting with you guys, I think, a fair bit on our Space Tuesdays with the George Mason University Observatory events coming up. And we certainly appreciate you, your time today, kind of setting almost the foundation giving us some explanation of some terms i know you guys are both very very busy we so appreciate your time i just have one kind of one final question for you both and that is one more term i'm going to throw at you and that's this idea of techno signatures i found that and i i didn't know what that meant right off the bat i I really I, i don't think i'd even seen that so i wonder if you'd tell our audience what this means and how it relates to uh intelligent alien civilizations and if they're out there
2: um yeah, I guess I can go first. Um, a technosignature is it is simply put, it's a signature of technology, and it it kind of comes from the 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 word biosignature, a signature of biology, which is a a, a big area of of um, research and in trying to find ways of detecting life on other planets. A technosignature is is, is a very broad term. It can include anything from discovering. Uh, a massive technological structure, say, surrounding a star, like what's called a Dyson sphere, which encompasses a star and absorbs all the energy from the star so that a civilization can do sort of amazing things. That would be a technosignature. And we would see it on the Earth as a a bright infrared source. We wouldn't see the star, of course, but we'd see a bright infrared source. Or we might see the Uh, the radiation from uh, an interstellar jet uh, powering a spacecraft. Um, Or we might see uh, even something like a broken spacecraft that has been abandoned in the asteroid belt. Or we might see, um, uh, say, uh, pollution in the atmosphere of an exoplanet, the kind of pollution that comes about from uh, industry, unclean industry, all those are are technosignatures, or, or just signatures of, of technology. Like I said, a very broad term, but it, it generally means that you we're know, looking for advanced life, not just biology, not just you know bacteria, or something that can change the chemical composition of the atmosphere, but something that can go much beyond that and is clearly of intelligent origin.
0: And Dr. Plavchik, tell us a little bit more about the search for technosignatures.
1: Yeah, so the search for technosignatures has has actually been accelerating over the past decade. And we know the search for extraterrestrial intelligence got its start decades ago with the search for radio transmissions uh, from nearby stars, Uh, much uh, like uh, mirroring the technology we had at the time. And just like the uh, technology at the time has advanced, so too has our searches for those kinds of technologies around other nearby stars. And Dr. Summers mentioned um, Dyson spheres and the infrared radiation. There's actually been a lot of scientific studies already placing constraints on the abundance of truly advanced civilizations. So if you can imagine a civilization instead of taking over a single star, taking over an entire galaxy, that would produce an excess of infrared heat. And there's actually been studies searching nearby galaxies for such advanced uh, type 3 kardashev civilizations and they they haven't found them so we do know at least in the in the nearby galaxies that those type 3 civilizations uh, probably don't exist although interestingly enough there were some candidates one of one of the issues and challenges of searching for techno signatures is the the old uh, saying that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and we've seen in the news over the past few years several observations of astronomers where the uh, observations could be consistent with uh, a technological civilization such as uh, Boyajian star, uh, the interstellar asteroid that flew by recently through the solar system. And one of the challenges that we face is that we really do have to rule out all possible natural explanations before we would really know that we've detected a techno signature, but the search is on. I mean, for example, we've had the invention of the laser, and with lasers uh, uh, prolifically in use throughout our society, there are now astronomers searching for laser signals, uh, interstellar laser communication with uh, with those devices. So. Uh, the future of SETI and the search for technosignatures is really promising, and we've got a long way to go, but to date we haven't seen anything um, that we can't definitively rule out from a natural region.
0: This is fascinating stuff. We, of course, have been with Dr. Peter Plavchin and Dr. Michael Summers, both professors of physics and astronomy at George Mason University. They've certainly been uh, great guests. We'd love to have you both come back and tell us how science is progressing to help us understand further uh, all of this uh, question that, that all of us do ask about, are we alone in the universe? But Dr. Peter Plavchan, thank you. Dr. Michael Summers, thank you. We're looking forward to your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation via Zoom. We're going to have more information on the website about both Dr. Peter Plavchan and Dr. Michael Summers. And then details about Zoom and details about the Smithsonian Associates program. But thank you both for your time today. Appreciate it. My thanks to Drs. Peter Plavchan and Michael Summers for joining us today to talk about searching for life in the universe. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes for our Space Tuesdays with George Mason University Observatory. My thanks to the Smithsonian for making all of this possible. My thanks always to you, my wonderful Not Old Better show audience. Remember, stay safe, everyone. Practice smart social distancing and talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody.